uh, take your copy of God's Word, I invite you to uh, open it to Revelation chapter 14. We'll be in 14, 1 through 15, 4 this morning as we continue in this series on Revelation. Uh, this week, looking at this heavenly war or this war in the heavenly places uh, that began in chapter 12 and 13, or, or John began relating it to us in chapters 12 and 13, and he'll conclude it here in 14 in the first part of 15. After that comes the seven bowls of God's wrath, and then after that, judgment on uh, uh, Babylon and the beast and the promise of Christ's uh, uh, final and perfect reign and the new heavens and the new earth. We're just getting to the good stuff in Revelation. I invite you to stand with me as you're comfortably able as we read together, as, uh, as we read Revelation 14, 1 through 5. The Apostle John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues relating this vision that the Lord gave to him. He writes this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Last week, looking at Revelation 12 and 13, we, we ended at the end of chapter 13 with the beast and his minions, his many from among the nations that had taken the mark of the beast in allegiance to the beast over and against allegiance to God and to the Lamb. They're stationed at the end of Revelation 13, stationed against the people of God. Revelation 13 does not end particularly encouragingly. And had we stopped there, if John's revelation had ended there, it would have ended rather poorly. There would have not been much encouragement for the saints. And as we've seen all along the way, the purpose, the the point of revelation is to encourage, to inspire the saints of God to endure with faith until Christ comes again. If Revelation 13 was the end of that, that would hardly be very encouraging. Well, praise God, it's not the end. We come to Revelation 14 and the first part of Revelation 15 today, where we find in these two chapters, or, or this whole chapter and part of the next, just breaking up Revelation into, into clear, distinct chunks is rather difficult. Uh, it's one vision that kind of flows in and out of different things, and so breaking it at, at specific places is kind of difficult. The chapters and verses in your Bibles are not inspired. John didn't write those when he was writing them down. They're there for helpful reference, but breaking them up is kind of difficult. Nevertheless, we see in chapter 14, the first part of 15, that at the end of all things, when, when this age of, of redemptive history comes to a close and Jesus comes in power and glory, that he will give his people spiritual victory and he will judge his enemies perfectly. The end of chapter 13 leaves us wondering, what about this beast who seems to be standing with such power? Will he be judged? 
What about these people who have denied Christ and given their allegiance to the beast? What about them? What will God do with these wanton sinners who have, who have uh, positioned themselves so harshly against God's people? What will happen? Revelation 14, first part of 15 tells us at the end of all things, Jesus will give his people victory and he'll judge his enemies perfectly. This is the main idea of Revelation 14 and first part of 15, our text today. The Lamb of God is victorious. That's the main point of this chapter. The Lamb of God is victorious. Not just that he will be victorious, but that he is victorious even now. And as we see the victory of the Lamb, the Son of God, the one who has authority to take the scroll from the Father on his throne and open it to reveal all that will take place until he comes again, the victory of the Lamb is a sure call to us to follow him. Because the Lamb wins, because Jesus is victorious, there is a call for all those who know this news to follow him, to follow the victorious one. In these first five verses of Revelation 14, we have a vision of the Lamb in victory. On the one hand here at the beginning of chapter 14, we have as chapter 13 closes, on the one hand we have the beast and all of his cadre of sinful humanity. And on the other side, perched in the safety and security of the high ground of Zion, the Lamb of God and his sealed multitude. This vision seems to transport us out of time to see the heavenly reality that all those who belong to the Lamb will be gathered to Him under the perfect shelter of His strength. This reality brings a proverbial flood and, and, and storm of worship from heaven. When the Lamb stands in victory at the end of time, nothing can stand in the way of the worship of angels and the redeemed alike. When Jesus stands in victory over all things perfectly and finally, nothing else will, will, will be able to drown out the sounds of worship from all his created beings. John hears in these verses the angelic host singing a new song. Maybe this new song was like the new song that was sung in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, when the Lamb took the scroll from the Father's hand. When he does that, a new song was sung. Routinely throughout Scripture, new songs are songs that are sung by God's people specifically in response to God's salvation of His people. There are new songs that are called to be sung all throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Sing a new song to the Lord. Why? Because He's redeemed His people. He saved His people. And this new song that is sung in Revelation 14, a song that is taught to the 144,000, who we know from Revelation 7 are also that great multi-ethnic multitude, the 144,000, a picture of God's perfectly saved people in all of their wholeness. They are taught this new song. Why? Because these are the ones who have been redeemed. These are the ones who have been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have been perfectly and finally saved from sin and from the onslaught of the beast. They sing a new song on Mount Zion with the Lamb because they're secure and securely saved. The description of the Lamb's 144,000 is exciting. I think it is. They're described as being pure as virgins, not having defiled themselves with women. Now, this is not to say that the redeemed of the Lamb are only virgin men. Rather, it seems to be a reference to sexual fidelity and purity as a contrast to adulterous idolatry. 
All throughout Scripture, idolatry, worship of false gods, is equated with spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. And so now here we have a picture of spiritually faithful people who belong to the Lamb. These are those who have not thrown their lot in with the beast, but these are those who have, who have endured with faith until the Lamb has come again in victory. The description of their purity is a picture of their uncompromising worship of Christ only. Later in Revelation, the people of God will be called the bride of Christ. And already in Revelation, the church has been warned not to partake in sexual immorality, which was so often tied to the worship of false gods throughout the Roman Empire. The purity of the saints here in Revelation 14 goes further to what they speak. There is nothing false in their mouths. They are blameless, John says. Friends, these, verses of chap- these first verses of chapter 14 depict for us what will be the final state of all who know Jesus, of everyone who belongs to the Lamb. They will stand in victory over the beast and his horde because of the blood of the Lamb shed for their sins and because of the faithfulness that they have had to the Lamb through every age, made holy and made righteous, not in their own sinlessness, but made holy and made righteous by the garments that the Lamb himself supplies to us. Clothed in his righteousness, we will stand in victory and security with him. That's what Revelation 14 is picturing for us. What an encouraging image contrasted with this beast. And all those who are marked, you have the lamb and all those that he has sealed, standing in perfect contradistinction to the beast and those who belong to him. If your name is in the lamb's book of life, if you have been sealed by the name of God through faith in Jesus Christ, dear friend, you will not accidentally take the beast and you will stand with the lamb in victory. But John's vision goes on. Follow along in 14, uh, 6 through 13. John says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. So you have this, this vision, you've got the, the beast and his on the sea and, and, and the lamb and, and those that belong to him on Mount Zion. And, and kind of as John is looking out on this panoramic he, uh, image, he sees angels flying overhead. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Remember, dwell, those who dwell on the earth are those who live according to this worldly system, earth dwellers. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Verses 6 to 13 of Revelation 14, we have three messages to the dwellers on the earth. 
These three messages come through three angels. Having illustrated the reality of God's people in safety and the beast's minions there dwelling on the earth, John tells us that he sees three angels flying overhead with three messages for these earth dwellers. Remember, those who dwell on the earth throughout Revelation are contrasted with those who dwell in heaven. You're a citizen of one or the other. You're a citizen of the earth or you're a citizen of heaven. There is no mushy middle. There is no confused in-between. Earth dwellers are those who are committed to worldly systems of idolatry and self-gratification. Heaven dwellers are those who are committed to the Lamb and faithful to the testimony of His grace in every age. The first angel that John sees proclaims the eternal gospel. This is the unchanging good news that Jesus Christ died for sins and was raised again to the praise and glory of God. This gospel is proclaimed here to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Did you see that? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because these same groups, every nation, tribe, language, and people, are the same groups who make up the great multi-ethnic multitude that belong to the Lord in Revelation 7. And they're also the same groups that follow the beast, every tribe, nation, language, and people. The gospel, the eternal gospel that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead so that all who follow him as Lord and Savior, repenting of their sin, will be saved. The gospel is good news proclaimed to the whole world in the picture of this angel proclaiming it because there's not a soul in the world, friends, who doesn't need to hear it. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people, not just first world countries, Not just developing nations, all of them. Not just wealthy people, not just poor people, all people. Not just people who speak English, not just people who speak so many other thousands of languages around the world, all people. The gospel is proclaimed to every tribe, nation, language, and people because every soul needs to hear it. John sees a second angel. The second angel comes with a message that Babylon has fallen This is a bit of a confusing message to us in Revelation because we haven't heard about Babylon yet. This is its first reference, and the first thing we hear about Babylon is that it's fallen. We'll we'll read about the fall of Babylon, God's judgment upon Babylon in Revelation 18 in coming weeks. But suffice it to say here that this message from the angel fallen is Babylon is a picture uh, that, that reminds us, it takes us back to that ancient city of Babylon revisited as a symbol for the world systems that love idolatry and excess, that love sexual immorality and who revel in their sinful self-sufficiency. There is a sense in which John looked out at the world in which he lived, the Roman Empire, which was full of idolatry, excess, sexual immorality, reveling in sinful self-sufficiency. And he's looking at the Roman Empire saying, this is Babylon. The kind of stuff, the spiritual state of this place is no better than the spiritual state of Babylon. Those people who came and took the people of Judah into captivity. The fall of Babylon, this declaration that Babylon has fallen, is a declaration of final victory over all of these worldly systems by the true and righteous Lamb. He wins. The Lamb is victorious. There's a third angel. The final angel brings a message of dire judgment. It's a message that's hard to read, and it's a message that's hard to hear because of its graphic depiction of torment for those who are judged in God's wrath. The message of judgment is for all who worship the beast and its image and receive its mark. All these, the angel declares, will drink the full cup of God's undiluted wrath. The full strength, 
wrath of God against sin will be absorbed, will be received by unrepentant sinners in unending, unresting torment in hell. That's what these verses tell us. Understand from this passage that the Bible affirms the doctrine of hell as a place of everlasting conscious torment under the righteous wrath of God against sin. It's a difficult doctrine, not because it's unclear from Scripture, but because it's abundantly clear in Scripture. Neither is hell a popular doctrine, but it's a certain reality as God's Word, teaching, as God's word teaches uh, and, and requires that, that, that we consider its necessity, the necessity of hell for the vindication of God's perfect holiness. If God does not judge wickedness, He's not a just God worthy of worship. If God does not judge wickedness, he, is not, he cannot be said to be a good God. Now, frightening and saddening as the reality of hell is, and brothers and sisters, we should be frightened and we should be saddened by the reality of hell in Revelation 14. As frightening and saddening as the reality of hell is, the prospect of deliverance from this fate should be equally joyous and encouraging. The fact that God offers a, a means for people to be redeemed, to be rescued from their headlong fall into sin and death and hell forever is a wonderful and a joyous prospect, an encouraging prospect that God would reach down out of His love to undeserving sinners and provide an escape from the hell of their own choosing, the hell of their own sin, is a joyous and wonderful reality. The truth of the matter is that the Bible consistently explains that those who enter hell, friends, are completely deserving of it. The wages of sin is death. But the gospel, the the word of God also confirms all over the place that God has held out the gift of eternal life with him for the undeserving. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, hell is real, but yes, there is a means of escape from it. Through faith in Jesus who gave his life as a sacrifice to redeem us from our sins. Now, after these angels pass over with these messages, John tells the church what they are to glean from them. What are we supposed to know? What are we supposed to to learn? Uh, What are we supposed to do having heard these messages from these three angels in this vision? These messages, the gospel, this declaration of the Lamb's victory over Babylon, this proclamation of judgment, of sin and wickedness, all serve, John says, as a call for the saints to endure until Christ returns, staying entirely faithful to Him. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. These who are faithful receive a blessing. Those who endure in faithfulness to Jesus until he comes again, whether we lose our lives for the sake of the gospel or whether we die by natural causes before Jesus returns, all those who die in the Lord are blessed, John says. There is a blessing that comes from the the ensuring of the Holy Spirit's promise to those who follow the Lamb. It's a Spirit-insured promise of blessing, of gladness in God, that all who die in Christ will not be in hell where there is no rest from God's wrath, but rather they will go to their Lord's side where they will have perfect rest. Did you see that contrast of rest and no rest? Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. 
Verse 13, blessed indeed, says the, Spirit, that, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. My friends, can you look with confidence to this promise, this promise of rest in the presence of the Lamb who's victorious over sin and death? Can you count yourself blessed, full of God's favor and gladness, because you are in Christ, having trusted Him as Lord? Are you able to comfort your soul knowing that because Christ has drunk the full cup of God's wrath for you on the cross, that you will not have to endure His righteous anger? Can you count yourself blessed along with those of verse 13? I pray you can. I pray you can because you've come to know Jesus, the Lamb who reigns in victory. John tells us something more. Follow along verses 14 through 20. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. These verses give us a depiction of two harvests. We've seen the lamb in victory over against the beast and his people. We've seen these three messages of uh, the gospel, the lamb's victory over Babylon, God's judgment of sin, and a blessing for those who endure to the end. And now, a picture of two harvests. First, there's the wheat harvest of the earth. As the vision of the angels passes, John sees this vision now. And this time he sees someone appearing like a son of man coming on the clouds. Now, this image should be familiar to us already. Uh, This image reflects the son of man's appearance to John in Revelation 1. The risen son of Jesus. That is who, or the risen son, Jesus. That is who this son of man is. In Revelation 1, he came uh, in power and glory, appearing to John, uh, similarly to how he was revealed to the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7, verse 13. Jesus himself said to the disciples that they would see him coming on the clouds with glory after his resurrection and ascension to the Father. In Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, in several places, he says this to his disciples and to others. Each of these descriptions that Jesus gives about him coming on the clouds of glory speaks to his return in all the power and authority of God because he is himself God, coming in the power and the glory of God to judge the living and the dead. Now, as the Son of Man comes here in John's vision, he's pictured with a sickle. You know what a sickle is? It's a long a crescent-like, crescent-shaped blade at the end of a long stick. Think of a, a picture of the grim reaper. The thing he holds, that's a sickle. As he comes here, as the Son of Man comes here, he's got the sickle in one hand and he's told it's time to reap. It's time to put the sickle in to cut the wheat and bring in the harvest. Now regularly, throughout the Bible, harvests of wheat are seen as positive events. They are a picture of God's blessing that God has provided throughout the growing season. And when harvest comes, it's a day of joy and celebration and worship of the God who provides. Now we know that Jesus does refer to Harvests of wheat in a parabolic sense, (coughs) excuse me, 
in a parabolic sense where the one who brings in the wheat separates the wheat from the chaff or the wheat from the weeds. And, and, the one, and those who are among the wheat or the wheat represents those who are redeemed among Christ's people. And the chaff, the weeds, represent those who were pretenders, those who were never really part of the redeemed. But here in this picture, here in this vision, this wheat harvest is entirely positive. The harvest of the Son of Man is a harvest unto final salvation of those whose faith is in Christ. This harvest is a picture of Jesus gathering to himself everyone who has been sealed with his name and everyone who belongs to him. This is a picture of the Lamb calling to himself the 144,000, that great multi-ethnic multitude of every nation, tribe, language, and people who have followed the Lamb. And then there's a second harvest. The second harvest is not a wheat harvest, but a grape harvest, a grape harvest on the earth. And now it's not the Son of Man who's swinging a sickle, but now it's another angel from heaven with a sickle in his hand, which kind of mirrors the sun in the earlier verses. But this angel comes to reap a harvest like the sun did. Not a harvest of wheat, but a harvest of grapes. If you've ever wondered where the John Steinbeck book title, Grapes of Wrath, comes from, it's this passage. Normally in Scripture, grape harvests are also a picture of blessing. Because they lead to the production of wine, which is a blessing from God upon his people, as his uh, Old Testament people, his Old Covenant people understood. But here, these grapes that are reaped are grapes that have been stored up for God's wrath. Those who are gathered here are those who are marked by the beast, those earth dwellers, those citizens, not of heaven, but those citizens of Babylon. When the angel swings his sickle, these grapes that he gathers are thrown into God's heavenly wine press where they are pressed outside the city, that is, outside the safety and security of Zion where the lamb and his 144,000 dwell. It's apart from the presence of God. These grapes, we find, are not just grapes, but they're people. They stand as a picture of all of those who do not belong to the lamb, all of those who have rejected the lamb. As these grapes are trod in the winepress of God's wrath, blood flows out. Normally when you step on grapes, juice comes out. But here, blood comes out. And blood that flows as high as a horse's bridle. I don't have that much experience with horses, but I've been around one or two. A horse's bridle is about yay high. So, you know, eyeball deep in blood for 1,600 stadia or 180 miles. Friends, this is a clear image of God's final judgment upon the unregenerate, upon those who have rejected the truth of the gospel, upon those who have followed their own sinful impulses their whole life long, never repenting of it, never seeking God's grace. They are the objects of God's final wrath and judgment. His judgment will be complete. The picture of him pressing these grapes out in the wine press of his wrath is a picture of complete judgment, perfect judgment. Now for the Christian, we rejoice in this. Because we long for a day when God will judge perfectly and totally. But for the person who's outside of God's grace, this is a a day of terror. This is a day to be warned about. This is a a plea. This is a, a call to repentance. This is a call to faith. To no longer be numbered among those who belong to the beast, but to be numbered among those who belong to the Lamb. It's a plea to not experience the wrath of God in yourself, but to trust Jesus who took the whole wrath of God in himself for sinners on the cross to plead his blood as your redemption, to plead his death as your justification. On the day of God's complete wrath, friends, he will not hold back. There will be a day 
when the extension of his mercy comes to an end. There will be a day when he will require from everyone what is required. Friend, knowing where you are in your relationship to Jesus Christ, either with him or against him, which harvest can you expect to be a part of? Which of these two realities would be true for you in this moment if Christ returned today to enact his final judgment? Who would you be counted among? That great multi-ethnic multitude held in safety and security in Zion with the Lamb because you have counted his blood shed for your sins or with the beast and the winepress of God's wrath. His wrath being quenched in the judgment of those who have rejected him forever. Friend, which one do you belong to? We said last week, I'll say it again this week, notice there's no mushy middle. There's, there's no one in the middle uh, uh, between these two places that can say, oh, I didn't know. Or, you didn't give me enough evidence, God. There's no one in the middle that can claim any, no one, no one in the middle who doesn't belong to the land that can claim any excuse that will deliver them from the day of God's judgment, from the day of God's wrath. This is a scary picture. But it's scary not because it's, it's, it's grotesque or graphic. It's scary because it's true. That for every person that has ever lived in the world, their life has, has, has experienced one of two realities. That they are either hidden with God in Christ or opposed to Him and an object of His wrath. John continues relating his vision to us in chapter 15. Follow along in your Bibles, the first four verses. Then I saw another sign in heaven, John says, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for, you are righteous, for your righteous acts have been revealed. As our passage concludes this morning, we're not left with just this horrible image of God's wrath upon those who have not believed, those who have not followed the, la- uh, uh, the Lamb, but we're left with one beautiful song of salvation. Revelation 15, 1-4 closes, with, closes this interlude between the trumpets and the bowls, uh, the series in Revelation, and begins to introduce the bowls. But uh, what John sees after the winepress of God's wrath are here seven angels with seven plagues. They're said to be the last plagues, and this may indicate that these come chronologically at the end of, the t- at the end of time, or that they're the, the last in the series of John's visions in Revelation. Nevertheless, Before the bowls can be poured out, and we'll get there next week, John sees in the throne room of God all of those who conquered the beast by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Remember from Revelation 12, they stand on the glassy sea, which is the floor of the throne room. But here that glassy sea is mixed with fire, uh, likely indicating the outpouring of God's wrath against the ungodly. And these who are gathered in God's heavenly throne room, these who belong to the Lamb, sing a song. The song they sing is called the Song of Moses. Now, it's interesting. The Song of Moses appears in other places in Scripture. The first time it appears is in Exodus chapter 15. 
It comes in Exodus chapter 15 after the people of God have been delivered from slavery in Egypt, been brought safely through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea, as it was divinely and miraculously parted by God, comes crashing down upon the Egyptian army, keeping the Hebrew people safe. As they come through the Red Sea safely, Moses leads them in a song of rejoicing for God's wonderful victory and salvation that he has brought to them. It's a song that sings the power of God over the Egyptians. It's a song that sings of salvation that he has brought to his people. Interestingly enough, the song that is sung in Revelation 15, the song of Moses in Revelation 15, does not actually come directly from Exodus chapter 15, which is kind of funny. John, why are you calling this the song of Moses if it isn't technically the song of Moses? Rather, this song of Moses and the song of the Lamb in Revelation 15 verses 3 and 4 is kind of a compilation of multiple songs to God for his salvation, praising, worshiping God for his redemption of his people from all over the Old Testament. Just kind of, kind of a hodgepodge of the, the best parts, like all of God's greatest hits, just thrown in in this, one, this last song of salvation. The song in Revelation 15 is a song of salvation, like the song of Moses in Exodus. It's a song that extols the power of God, the justice of God. It sings about the glory of God and, 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 and delights itself in the holiness of God. And those who sing it are those who stand with the victorious lamb at Zion. These are these, those who have been redeemed from God's wrath against sin by the power of the gospel. Those who have been freed from slavery to sin to become sons and daughters of God by the blood of the Lamb and their faithfulness to Him will sing God's great salvation song for millennia to come in eternity. We end chapter 13 with this kind of scary picture, intimidating picture of the beast and his people opposed to the Lamb's people. And we wonder, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to leave us in this state? Are we just going to walk around in fear and terror, being faithful for no reason? Well, in Revelation chapter 14, first part of 15, the Lamb says to John and through John to the church, absolutely not. I will not leave you in a place of danger. I will take you to a place of security. I will not leave justice undone. I will pour it out full strength on those who deserve it. And I will take those who are in me to a place of glory where they will sing of my salvation forever and ever. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. Friends, what do we do in light of this beautiful victory call? The the, the reality that the Lamb is victorious. I have one point for you this morning. One point of application is this. Follow the Lamb. Follow the Lamb to blessed, restful victory. Who are those that are gathered with the Lamb on Mount Zion? Chapter 14, verse 4. It is those who, have fo- who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. How do you count yourself among the 144,000? How do you count yourself among those that Christ has securely saved? You follow the Lamb who is Jesus. The path to victory, the path to overcoming, the path to blessing, the path to life is not through positive thinking. It's not through self-actualization. Friends, it's not even through being a better version of yourself. It's through following after Jesus, walking after the Lamb. And following Jesus requires giving up all that we are to become what the Lamb desires to make us. This is a call to discipleship. It's not just a call to salvation. It is that. It is a call to trust Jesus as Lord, but it's also a call to discipleship. It's a call to endurance and to faith. 
among those who keep the commandments of God. This is a call to follow Jesus closely, to follow him tightly, to be conformed to his image, to repent of sin and to hate the wickedness of our own hearts and to love the righteousness that he clothes us in when we trust him. In her book, just kind of a running commentary on Revelation, Nancy Guthrie writes these words. Remember from the beginning of Revelation, uh, the Apostle John writes, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of these prophecy. Uh, Blessed are those who hear and who keep it. Nancy Guthrie says, Hearing and keeping these words in Revelation 14 and 15 means that we want to be marked by what marks the redeemed in this passage. Did you notice what distinguishes them? True True spirituality. A rigorous pursuit of personal holiness. Uncorrupted, uncompromised, undefiled spirituality. They are obedient as they follow the Lamb who is also their shepherd. And they are corrected by His rod and protected by His staff. They're willing to submit even when it's costly. And there's something about the way they talk. In their mouth, no lie was found, Revelation 14.5. They don't listen to or repeat half-truths or outright falsehoods. Their words have weight because they are consistently truthful. And not just generally truthful, but truthful about the costs and benefits of following the Lamb, even when the beast is breathing down their neck and pitching a much more attractive message. Oh, don't we want this to be what distinguishes us in the world? That we as individuals and as the church would be known not for compromise, but for purity. Not for charting our own course, but for following the Lamb. For those who follow the Lamb, victory is certain. Friend, is that you? Have you followed Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, who was raised in victory from the grave to, to make in right standing with God everyone who falls on Him? Is that you? I pray that it is. I pray that it is. We follow the Lamb, not just to salvation, but we follow Him in discipleship, being conformed to His image, being changed by Him, being shaped by His Word challenging one another to follow him more closely, to pursue Jesus in personal purity with with greater fervency and, and dedication to the task. We follow the Lamb because he's victorious. We follow the Lamb because he's given God's wonderful grace to us. We follow the Lamb because he gave himself for our redemption. Those of us who are Christians, those of us who have trusted Jesus as Lord, have opportunity to follow the Lamb and, and declare that we are followers of the Lamb in a public way this morning as we come to the Lord's table. This meal that we eat together, we call it the Lord's Supper, Supper is a picture of, of Christ's sacrifice for sin. What was required to absorb all of God's righteous wrath against our sin that we might be redeemed from it? It's His body broken for us in the bread that we eat. His blood shed for sins in the cup that we drink. That was the cost of your redemption, the life of the only Son of God. And we come to this table, those of us who take this meal, saying, I have trusted that Jesus. I am following the Lamb. This is a meal that is for Christians. So, friend, in a few moments, as we'll pray and prepare to come and receive the elements, if you're not yet a believer, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've not yet declared your allegiance to Christ in a public way, having followed him in believer's baptism, we, we encourage you not to take this meal today, but instead observe what you see around you, a room full of people who have followed the Lamb, who have said our victory is in him. And we endure in this present age by being faithful to Jesus, who died for sins, who rose again, who's coming again in justice to call his people to himself 
and to judge perfectly the wickedness of the world. Parents, if you have children who have not yet made a public profession of faith and followed the Lord in believer's baptism, we encourage you, uh, keep them from taking this meal this morning because they would be proclaiming a faith that they do not yet hold. And we want to do everything in integrity. We know there's no mushy middle here in Revelation. There is no, no neutral party here in between. And so we want to also indicate that in, what we, in how we take the meal today. We don't take the Lord's Supper to say, eh, you know, maybe God will look with favor on me if I do this. No, we take it because we've already made a commitment to Christ as Lord. You don't have to be a member of First Baptist West Albuquerque to take this meal. But as we've said, we do ask that you have made a public profession of faith in Jesus, having followed him by believer's baptism in immersion in water, and that you be consistently walking in a manner that uh, reflects your dedication to the Lamb. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be perfect to take this meal. Lord knows I'm not. So much of our, our process of following the Lamb comes in fits and starts. We have great seasons of sanctification and other seasons where, where we, we fall into sin time and again. Friend, I just ask you, if you're following Jesus, if your faith is in Him, have made in your heart the first steps of repentance toward any sin that you need to turn from this morning before you take this meal. I'm going to pray. Pastor Danny's going to lead us in a song. And I invite you to come and uh, uh, take a, a set of the elements to your seat. Don't take it yet. We'll take it all together. Just so you know, the elements are nested one cup inside the other. So be sure to grab two cups at the same time. Uh, in the cup in the bottom is a bit of the bread. And then there's a cup that sits inside that has the, uh, that has the juice that's in there. Um, so just be sure to take both. Otherwise, you'll miss out on uh, half of the elements. But as you do and take them to your seat, be mindful of what it means to follow the Lamb, being conformed to His image, being known by the character of Jesus that shapes us as we follow Him to victory. I want to pray a prayer for us, a prayer that's been written down by a faithful, faithful saint many years ago. And let this be our prayer of preparation for taking the Lord's Supper together. Pray with me.